Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by the Freshtovian Order of the Asiago Ranch Chicken Club. Some adventures attack the darkness, we attack the deep freeze. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod and find all this information on our website, www.lggpod.com podcast.com. Uh, we said in our prior episode, Kirk, that uh, release dates may get spotty here <laughs> yes, due exactly. to general busyness, and that has come to pass. <laughs> Definitely. I think this one's releasing late. I think we're, yeah. <laughs> the next one's got a decent chance of being late. I had our, in our, our notes for the prior podcast, I had written down, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I think that still remains <laughs> it's true. It's going to get worse. We're both going to D.C. in October, so if any of you uh, meet us there or uh, uh, have met us there and listening to this after the fact, hi, welcome. Um, but yeah, we'll be in D.C. for a convention and uh, just general end of the year uh, insanity. So yep. uh, the, I, we, we may not get back into record until uh, November at this rate for uh, our next episode. Yeah, but so. let's see how it goes. This what it is. Yeah, for those of us who are going to be, we're going to be at the AIPLA's annual meeting. So if any of you guys are interested in do that, American Intellectual Property Law Association, if any of you guys happen to be around uh, you know, D.C. around that time, feel Look free to come see us and uh, give us a call and we can try to meet up with you. So today's episode is what I'm calling the the grab bag episode. <laughs> it's just a mishmash of of barely related things that are interesting that we all want to that Kirk and I want to talk about. So not only are we you know on a spotty schedule now, we're on a spotty you know episode yeah, spot, like structure spotty theme at this <laughs> point. Theme. But I mean, I think the the real point behind this is we want to follow up on some prior episodes we've done. Some things have changed, and there's been some sort of developments in the law we want to talk about. And I think we finally realized we have enough of these to do one episode, so we figured it made sense to do it and get. Yeah, to I it. think we've got basically six to cover. Um, so each one's going to get about ten minutes of short treatment. Some will get more than others. Um, the first one's probably going to get the most. Others may only get a couple of minutes. Uh, but we'll start going through them. So the first one is, I have an announcement. We are wizards. We are Jedi. We can see the future. <laughs> we can see the future. So we did an episode in November of last year talking about why um, the Electronic Arts uh, College football game was no longer being made. So we're going to play a clip from that episode for you in just a second. It's 40, uh, 70 seconds long. But to provide the content uh, context, Kirk and I had discussed that the courts had, you know, a year or two prior, actually quite a ways prior, uh, ruled that um, electronic arts use of college athlete likenesses uh, in the video game was not a fair use. And that EA had to get permission and, uh, you know, pay for it. Yep. Uh, the NCAA had stepped in and said, uh, and EA said, okay, we'll do that. Yeah. But the NCAA stepped in and said, if the athletes accept these payments, uh, they are receiving compensation related to their uh, performance, which violates the NCAA's amateurism principle. Yep. And the athletes would then be ineligible to uh, compete under the NCAA's uh, rules. So the issue was not that the law doesn't allow players to receive compensation, uh, quite to the contrary, it practically <laughs> requires, requires it. it. Uh, the issue is that this private organization, the NCAA, has forbidden it. So here's the clip, uh, and again, this is us talking in November of last year. You know, there's a difference between being a professional athlete and different and an amateur athlete. But that, in this case, the instance doesn't really derive from legal 
um, requirement specifically, it's because you've got this private organization inserted into the amateur side, but it's analog in the professional side doesn't impose this limitation. Yeah. And again, part of the reason we look at that is say, because what they're doing is they're imposing a moral or a policy limitation, which really, you know, the law is not designed to regulate. You know, it will do it when it's told this is it what could, the outcome is right? supposed to be. Congress could come out and say, uh, we are going to forbid any public university that receives federal funding from participating in the NCAA <laughs> or any of its activities. No, these receives um, federal funding. Yes. We need a commerce clause. Yeah. So, so USC Actually, you know, all the private schools will still be in there. They still do. Um, but yeah, but you know, th- that's going to be their jurisdictional hook. We forbid you from participating until and unless X. And X will be whatever compensation arrangements they want to have for the student athletes. Congress could step in and fix this. Um, and really, a state could too. I mean, these schools get funding from the state. So yep. all it would take is Texas to step up and say, nope, we're not doing it anymore. But it wouldn't be Texas. It had to be Alabama because that's what everybody cares about <laughs> well, now. Well, it, I, I think any one of them could do it. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't Texas or Alabama, it was California. <laughs> I was the one right. I got the, I got the other states. Of course, I had 48 of them, and you only had two. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I should have gotten longer odds on that. <laughs> on that What's the payout? Uh, so, so two questions that are interesting about this. So one, the question that, that nerds care about, does this mean EA, NCAA football is back? Well, and then two, why California? I think the first thing we should potentially do is just summarize a little bit of what California said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they didn't quite do what I thought they were going to do. They basically just passed a law. It's not connected to funding at all. They just passed a law that says nobody will will be ineligible for competition in any um, sports competition or athletic competition, not by the school, not by the state, not by the NCAA or any other collegiate organization. Nobody, No athlete in California can be rendered ineligible by reason of having accepted compensation for the use of their likeness. Yep. Yeah, so the, the real key about this is, is in some sense it targeted this exact question, you know, that we're looking at, the idea of likeness as use. But I think, yeah, the question we had in the case for all sports geeks is, does this mean we're going yeah. to see Electronic Arts NCAA football coming back? And it's, I think it's possible because the, this, this California law does not say that the schools have to pay the players. We don't have that going on. There, it's basically just saying if, if, the, you know, if you have a player at USC and someone at the local car dealership wants to put them in a commercial and pay them $5,000 for it, they can, and the player cannot be held ineligible to compete because of that arrangement. Yep. And so I think, you know, practically speaking, th- th- you know, nationally, this might affect a half dozen players. I mean, there aren't that many college athletes that are famous enough on a national level to make this worth anybody's while. Yep. I would think locally, there's probably, uh, you know, two, three, maybe a half dozen kids at each school who might be able to get on and do a local commercial for your local burrito joint or something along those lines, yeah. Or whatever. Uh, you, you people from Iowa, you know, Poncheros, line them up. Um, so, but I mean, as far as the EA football goes, I think this this is a domino that has to fall for that to come back. Yeah. But there's a ways to go yet, right? Because you know this is just California; it's just students in California. So now we see other states are rushing to get legislation put together so they're not at a at a competitive disadvantage to California. Uh, and the NCAA, their hand has now been forced; they're going to have to do something. And I think fifty fifty odds whether they come up with some sort of um, regulatory or rules compromise yeah. that allows this to go forward versus they sue California on some ground and say that the the rule's unenforceable. No, I think the key thing you got to keep in mind here is, you know, this is not the NCAA saying this. This is California California. saying this. And the NCAA can still say, well, you're still ineligible to participate under NCAA rules with any of our things and basically just kick all the California schools out of the NCAA. Yeah, I I haven't quite thought through how this will interact because the NCAA is not the government. It's just uh, this organization, right? So they've got a rule that says to compete in our competitions, 
you can't do this. And California saying, well, in California, it's illegal to say you can't do that. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the NCAA rules just don't apply to games played within the borders of California? What happens if USC is playing Notre Dame at Notre Dame? Like, <laughs> yeah. like d- does that matter? I, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to play yeah, out. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. And that's the biggest thing I think we had sort of with the question from it is, you know, while it's an interesting domino to fall, the exact implications of what the next domino is going to be. It's going to be the NCAA. Yeah, is, is a very interesting question. I know that they're doing like working groups, I think, now to figure out how they're going to respond to this and what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal as far as how it's going to impact collegiate athletics. But for EA football, there's still a logistical problem. Let's just assume that the NCAA comes up with a rule that says, okay, fine. Basically, we'll say what California said, that that you know merely monetizing your likeness rights, yep. that by itself is not enough to render you ineligible. You still got the problem of, you know, this is not like the NFL where you just go to the players union, which already has all these license right these rights licensed to it, yep. and say, okay, we'll take a license. How do you go get all the permission from all these kids to do this? Because EA was before relying on fair use. They don't need permission from anybody. They just say we're allowed yeah. to do it. Well, that's not fair use. Now they have to have permission. The court said that they have to have permission and they agreed effectively to say we will get permission, but logistically they don't have permission yet. Yeah. So th- so then does the NCAA, you know, do they act as that body? Do they say, okay, so for purposes of mass right licensing, all of you need to assign your likeness rights to us as part of the conditions for play, um, at least to the extent of, you know, national licensing for, for this kind of thing. You can retain your likeness for any other use. Like there's, there's a way to sort of slice and dice that. Yeah. And I just, I can't imagine a situation where the NCAA doesn't continue to insert itself in the middle of yeah, this process. Yeah, they've got to, obviously. And then maybe make a little coin on the side off. Yeah, and I've got to, I got also wonder, it's the, you know, exactly how it's going to be. They can't be ineligible to do it. Is the NCAA going to respond back to something that says, well, you have to license your likeness rights to us to play in NCAA And then they'll distribute the royalties. And then they distribute the royalties not to the students, but to some sort of general organization. I can see that kind of thing coming, some kind of general scholarship fund. I think they probably need to set up a separate organization to do that. Managing royalties is is well outside the NCAA's (laughs) expertise. I don't know. I mean, maybe they do that already, but I don't. They're basically turning into like the copyright royalty board, you know, at this point. Um, For amateur athletics, I kind of feel like they want outsource that to a specialist organization that knows how to handle it, can get the model because the rules all, this is all state law. These rules yeah. all vary state to state. And I think that's the biggest thing we're going to see potentially as a bump in this is that every state is potentially going to come up with its own law that may or may not mirror California in substantial respects, in all respects, in no respects. And that's, I think, where we're also going to then bump into it is, yep. an NC, you know, the NCA kind of needs to jump on this early to say, hey, we're going to try to implement this nationally. Therefore, states, you don't need to pass these kind of laws yeah, we'll because just we're just voluntarily it, doing yeah. it, and now we don't have to deal with a patchwork law as to whatever. So again, when we look at it and sort of say, hey, this is the first domino falling, I think the answer is yes, it probably is the first domino falling. I think there's another lawsuit that has to happen before this is all done. Like, whatever yep. the NCAA comes up with, somebody is going to sue them over it, yep. whether it's the athletes or the schools or or, or a state. Somebody's going to, yep. there's one more dispute to be resolved, which is going to be whether the NCAA's solution to this is acceptable. I think there will also be a potential challenge of the NCAA actually challenging California by just simply doing something. Again, whether it's setting an organization or even saying California schools cannot play yep. uh, because of this, which will result in a second lawsuit between NCAA and the state of California, um, which, you know, quite frankly, I'm not sure would be a particularly difficult legal issue to resolve, depending on exactly what it is. Yeah. But it may just be a necessary step to have a court step in and say, 
you can't do this to the NCAA. You know, so in some sense, the NCAA is saving face of saying, hey, we said you couldn't do this. We don't like people doing this, but the court now says we have to. So now we're going to. I feel like the NCAA may be at maximum like political fragility at this point with all the investigations going on with <laughs> basketball, uh, with some of the, the negative things that have happened in collegiate sports. Um, I, the, I mean, I, I don't have a strong opinion on the NCAA one way or the other. I, I truly do not. But my perception, I listen to a lot of sports podcasts and it is not a beloved organization by fans. Yeah. Uh, you know, schools are very careful because it's basically a consortium of schools. So it, it is them. Yeah. Um, you know, players try not to bad mouth it, but I, you know, the, the, the general attitude towards the NCAA is, is, is not, not generally positive, and I think they're probably aware of that and will be careful with how they yeah. play their hand. I, I think you generally have an issue of just the, you know, we talked about this in the prior episode too as well, that the so much of, of amateur sports is just not necessarily making sense anymore. You know, it makes sense in a lot of areas, but particularly when you start talking about basketball, football, you know, these Football's the main televised. one because you have to play in college. I mean, the college yeah. system is the farm league for the NFL, whereas yeah. in basketball, you can go straight through to, you know, the NBA and skip college and baseball. You know, if, yeah. if you're playing baseball in college, you're not going pro already, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how it is. Particularly with the, with the sports where you look at the, that they have, you know, wide television coverage, that there's, you know, sort of wide following of the collegiate level sports, not just of alumni and stuff like that, but of every school, you know, we've got this problem this being heavily monetized sort of to the disadvantage of the workers. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, which is being the the student athletes participating in this and that being just an issue of, you know, hey, there's a problem here. We recognize the fact that there's a potential problem here. What are we going to do about it? And I think that's why the NCAA literally is walking on fragile ground right now. You know, you talk about, you know, NCAA, you know, fencing, I don't think you have any kind of is- these kind of issues because in many respects it's you know they're, they're not making the kind of money they're yeah. not going to get the interest in their likeness rights that these other things are so we can almost look at this and say it's a fault of the consumer and the fact that we've become so entitled to watching collegiate sports on you know on our yeah. TVs that has created this problem and we're only watching certain collegiate sports at the same time we have and we can't go back from that it's not yeah. like people are going to suddenly stop watching the you know Final Four just because you know it's not necessarily good for everybody yeah the, the other domino to fall here are that the the colleges and the conferences also withdrew uh, their licenses to EA for the use of the team names and logos and things like that. Now, that was in response to all the uncertainty around these lawsuits. So, presumably, if this all gets worked out, I can't imagine the colleges saying, well, we don't want that money. I mean... Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I believe the schools are going to license them and they're going to take the money as to whatever. For a lot of schools, quite frankly, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. Unless this gets worked out way more quickly than I think is likely, I think we're probably at least a couple years off before it's sufficiently sorted out that yeah. that EA can really get back to, to putting anything out. Yeah, well, so. even if they get if they sorted it out this year, it'd be the next season before they could really do a game anyway. So, so the second question: Why California? <laughs> I mentioned Texas for obvious reasons. Football is king in Texas. Yeah, Alabama, Alabama. Um, but it came it came out of California of all places. And while California has a lot of you know college football talent, none of the programs out there are especially good at football right now. Yeah. Cal is bad. UCLA is bad. Stanford's bad. Uh, USC is not even that yeah. good. Like, they're they're all kind of not good. The the Pac twelve conference out there is kind of not good and hasn't been for a couple years. Um, why does California care so much? And I've got two theories on this. <laughs> One is that the company that makes 
E-A-N-C-A-A football and therefore makes revenue off it and pays state income tax off of it is situated in Santa Monica, California. So uh, if I'm California, I kind of want them to make and sell this product and to pay taxes on the revenue they make off of it. Uh, The other reason, um, someone actually mentioned this to me this morning, um, most, the, the, the California law expressly allows the use of talent agents by these athletes to manage their likeness rights, which is a good idea. It reduces the chances of them being taken advantage of, at least in theory. Uh, Kirk, if I were to ask you which state has the largest concentration of talent agencies, where would you guess that is? I would probably guess the traditional home of where the movie industry is, which would probably be California. California, right? So, so yeah, I I don't think, I mean, this is a little bit of a cynical view, but I don't think it's a coincidence that a state that largely doesn't care that much about sports uh, like this has nevertheless passed a law that happens to benefit two significant industries that are located in that state. So, uh, good good on you, California. You're going to force everybody's hand, and those of us who love playing this game are all grateful, but... uh, (laughs) There's a cynical view to this, too, which is yes, a exactly. shallow cash grab. And again, I think it's not like they're the only ones who are going to benefit. I think that potentially a lot of states, a lot of schools are going to benefit well, the coming out should of benefit this. Too, right? I mean, as well. This Local may be state. a nice middle ground between you know the schools flat out paying them and uh, and allowing the, the more uh, well-known kids to, to profit. Yep. So, um, okay, so th- that's it for that topic. Um, we have another athlete issue. though. The, the player tattoo episode we looked at, <laughs> more and more of these lawsuits are, are getting filed. Some of them are seeking millions of dollars. Uh, in, in damages. Uh, if you didn't see the prior episode, we can run through the issues real quick. And we, we don't have much to say about this other than more and more of these are being filed, so it's going to get dealt with. But, you know, t- tattoos are, are drawings, right? They're visual works of art that the tattoo artist, um, you know, happens to use uh, the, the human body as the canvas. But yep. other than that, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty much the same as any other drawing. So when you go pay a tattoo artist to put a tattoo on you, you're not buying the artwork. You're buying the service yep. of getting the tattoo. No different than if you walked in and gave the guy 100 box and said, here, draw me a picture of this, and you took the paper with you. You own the sheet of paper just like you own your own arm or wherever you got the tattoo, but that doesn't give you necessarily any rights to the artwork itself. Yep. You don't have the right to go uh, make distributions of it and things like that. Now, tattoos are odd because by the nature of it, it's on your body and you can't get rid of it. So yeah. if you walk outside, you are publicly displaying the tattoo. That is a right that technically only the copyright holder has, so there has to be like an implied license. Yeah. You know, the tattoo owner obviously knows that you're going to go outside and people are going to see it. So they've implicitly consented to that. Likewise, you're going to be photographed in your Facebook photos and things like that. They, they know some of these things are just going to happen by the nature of a tattoo. Um, but the, the the situation changes a little bit when you have famous athletes with well-known tattoos like Mike Tyson's face tattoo mm-hmm. or LeBron James has some famous tattoos. And those tattoos are reproduced faithfully in a digital recreation of the athlete in the EA NBA games. Hey, wait a minute. Or, we're, or, we're, it's, it's an athlete issue, but it's also another video another game video issue. Another video game issue. Um, and that's what these lawsuits are mostly over, is that these tattoos are being copied or reproduced, which is also an exclusive right that belongs to the copyright holder, and then publicly displayed in uh, in video games and things yep. like that. Uh, so this, this, to my knowledge, hasn't been resolved yet. I, I, I actually think there's a decent argument for implied license as well. You're tattooing 
one of the most famous NBA players in history. Do you not realize he's in this video game and that they're going to reproduce the tattoo there? Yeah, you've got some issues in conjunction with this and the fact that you're clearly altering somebody who has, uh, the, altering the likeness of somebody who clearly has value in their likeness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're paying you to do that. What I wonder about with this is that if, if it isn't something where what we're going to see is just essentially form language yeah. that, that arise that when you walk into a tattoo parlor, you know, the, the tattoo parlor is going to have to say, this is the license rights that I grant you. It's going to be yep. some kind of, you know, default form language. Well, that's what agents are doing now. Like, you're yeah. seeing sports agents start to include in, with tattoo artists, you know, when they when they get these, or include with their their uh, their athletes. When you get a tattoo, make sure you get these rights, and they're writing up, yeah. you know, stuff to include there. Yeah, and so I think that that's a lot of, quite frankly, where this is going to go. And you have to wonder how much of this is. The reason these lawsuits are being filed is because we have a little bit of, you know, sort of precedent that says it can work. And we have a lot of people who have not done any contracting around it because yeah. there was no need the, to do contracting. Again, the cynical view is that this is a, a cash grab by plaintiff's lawyers who are taking these cases on contingency and and looking to, you yeah. know, buy, buy themselves something nice. Well, you um, have a lot of it. It's the idea is it's these are cases where, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily a cause of action here 10 years ago because nobody thought about nobody it. Nobody thought about it, yeah. There is now a cause of action here, and there's a lot of people that have gotten the tattoos in the intervening time where there is no contract. So we kind of look at it and say, 20 years from now, these cases will not exist because it will all be governed by contracts. There will just be default agreements as to what it is. 20 years prior, it didn't exist because of the fact that it was a non-issue. But for this window, these cases exist because there is no contract and there is an issue. Or we'll get one of these to a decision. It'll get appealed and you'll get, uh, you know, the Ninth Circuit will say, no, it's a a fair use or it's an implied license or something like that. And then we'll just all just go away. But if I'm, you know, I guess if I'm, if I'm putting on my hat of, of, what if I was the lawyer? You know, I, I guess I'd be looking at like the players union of the league and saying part of my contract with my players is going to be, you know, we're going to we make a lot of money off of licensing these rights. So yeah. uh, you need to you the player promise to us the league that you will take care of this stuff. And if there's a problem, you indemnify us if you yeah. don't get your tattoos and or other body art or things like that dealt with. I think there's a future issue coming in this which hasn't yet, which is also going to be the when they have something tattooed which the artist does not actually own the copyright in. So Question, right? Like a field. I, I wonder about that. Like, so if if you know, so a lot of people just go to the tattoo parlor and they've got a picture of what they want. Yeah. And the tattoo artist just copies it. Well, presumably that's somebody else's copyright, yeah, right? Yeah. Maybe there's can... a lot of people I know who've gotten them have done their own artwork. You know, they've yeah. purposely done their or, own. Or artwork. they see something they like and they go to the same artist and say, "I want what that guy got." You yeah. Know? Um, but you know, I wonder if in, in situations where um, you know someone will Google something and then print off a picture from Google and then yeah. say, "I want something like this," you know, it's it's at least a derivative work, arguably. So if you've made an unlawful reproduction um, that's then being publicly displayed everywhere, the original author didn't impliedly consent to that. Yeah. So I don't know how that would shake out. It's a, it's an edge case. It's a good like law school exam question. And the even further one, just even taking it as more of an edge case, is the people where what the they actually have tattooed is a corporate trademark. Yeah. Um, you know, from another corporation where you now not only have copyright issues, you have potential trademark issues, you know, bumping into this type of thing. Um, you How know, could you enjoin that? You know, like a court's yeah. not going to issue a ruling ordering somebody to have a tattoo removed. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. And, and but you're, you've bumped in and bumped into this, well, but can the person have, can it be reproduced? Can we talk about the fact mm-hmm. the person has this? Because, you know, not only is it potentially something where um, you have a copyright issue, but I may have a disparagement issue. I don't like the way this player plays and yeah. yet they have my corporate logo or getting into trouble, you know, off the field or something like that. Yeah, you know, those kind of things with it. It's. I think this is an area where we're going to have a mess for a little 
little while. And yeah. I think that's sort of the way we concluded it last time is it's probably an area that's going to be a mess for a little while. What I think we're seeing right now is because it's a mess, we're seeing it go to the courts. The courts are doing what they're supposed to do, which is deal with the fact that these disputes exist right now. Mm-hmm. What we then expect to see come out of this is there will be some resolution, whether it comes from Congress, whether it comes from court holdings, whether it comes from private contract, I think just depends on, on who gets hold yep. of it first, that will resolve the issue in a way that sort of everybody knows what the outcome is. And that will sort of lead to the glut of cases going away um, as we all do whatever it is. So again, it may just be that a writer in every you know person's contract yep. is you have to own the, you know, if you eventually get a tattoo, you have to own the, the rights get to the tattoo. Get the rights to, so that we can use it the way we want to use yeah, it. Yeah, something like that. Well, one other edge case and a question I have not seen raised yet is the Visual Artist uh, Rights Act, VERA, which uh, is the U.S.'s uh, was it the Berne Convention we're complying yeah. with? So uh, the short the fir- short version is that the 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 Vera rules say that the the artist has certain rights uh, in the original copy of the work, the original uh, version, and one of those is the right of integrity, which means that it cannot be destroyed. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> so the original is is on LeBron James. Now you have to reach certain threshold levels of notoriety before these rights kick in. Yeah. But in theory, you know, if you're famous enough and your tattoos are famous enough, you could meet that threshold. Yeah. Does that now mean that the artist can no longer remove the tattoo without um, destroying the original? Well, I believe the artist could if they owned the copyright in conjunction with it. But another yeah. artist well, the, the, the could not. Yeah, the say. athlete could yeah. not. Yeah, so I, that's another one I think where the court would say, no, you can't, you know, the Vera is not going to trump your right of autonomy over your own body. Yeah, uh, and this one gets weird in this is because it's we assume sort of copyrighted works, you know, like Vera and the idea of these destructions is it's a mural on the side of a building. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what we're assuming in conjunction with it. That's not the it. case here. But that's not the case here. You know, we're talking about something which, you know, inherently involves the human body as well. Okay, so the next issue we've got, another sports issue. Um, uh, you may have recalled a couple um, well, a couple months ago now, Kirk and I got on this podcast and talked about how the Blues had won the Stanley Cup. It never happened before, and shortly thereafter, the Toronto Raptors won uh, the, NBA <laughs> cha- or the NBA championship. Uh, Toronto has since been—actually, they got sued a long time ago, a couple years <laughs> ago, but it has renewed vigor now. Yeah. Toronto was sued by Monster Energy Drinks on grounds that the quote-unquote claw logo used uh, by the Raptors is too similar to the Monster Energy Drink Claw logo. Yep. And we'll try and tweet these out. Um, hopefully we remember to, but we'll tweet them out so you guys can see them and compare. Um, setting aside the likelihood of confusion between the logos, Kirk, do you... Do you know anybody who doesn't understand the difference between professional basketball and beverages? They don't. I mean, it's one of those things that I think would be a pretty apparent as to the goods and services, but isn't Coca-Cola right now putting out, I think it's Coca-Cola, putting out custom cans or Dr. Pepper with logos on them mm-hmm. for football teams. Mm-hmm. Wait, maybe this is the issue we're getting at is it's, you know, these we've got sort of this cross-sponsorship yeah. deal and particularly the fact that these cross-sponsorship deals are becoming more and more common as the technology, and my understanding is, is it was actually a technological improvement that's now allowed these, these you know, beverage companies to manufacture individual cans so they can yeah. actually make small runs of cans. Yeah, like Dr. Pepper does all the college football stuff, so yeah. all their cans have football things all over them in the fall. Yeah, and it's, and, but I know they're going to do, I think it's logos or helmets or something along those lines in conjunction with them. You know, now we're starting to see, hey, wait, Wait a minute, does that mean the monster looks like it's it's between the Toronto Raptors logo? The other problem is it's the wrong way round. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got the we've got the Monster Energy suing Toronto here, not Toronto suing Monster Energy. Now, presumably, that may have just timing as to when these things came into play. I think that's part of what this is, is that because this case I think was filed in 2016 or 2017. It's been yeah. kind of sitting there for a while, uh, and it's it's gotten more interest lately because suddenly there's a demand for Raptors gear. So yeah. There's a lot more sales of potentially infringing products out there. Yeah, and it's uh, the thing I think is interesting about this is, uh, and and I really think the cross 
the cross-licensing thing here is interesting. We, we can look at it and say there's really no likelihood of confusion between energy drinks and professional basketball teams. No, I mean, teams. that doesn't even pass the laugh test, yeah, in my opinion. But, but what we're seeing is we're seeing the fact that there is sponsorship and cross-sponsorship growing more and more in disparate industries. And is this a harbinger of what is to come in conjunction with future trademark suits, yeah. where the goods and services distinction may not matter as much? Yeah, you get into the situation where since everybody can use everybody else's trademarks in these things, do consumers really fully appreciate the distinctions among these various organizations? Yeah. You know, especially when you get into like a, a Pepsi or a Coke that owns a large number of brands under its umbrella or even like TV channels, you know, like it's no coincidence that all the Disney movies are being advertised on ESPN and ABC. It's all yeah. part of the same corporate family. Uh, so y- you wonder about those kind of things and whether the 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 sort of the the way that trademarks get used now is is resulting in sort of de facto uh, dilution and blurring in the marketplace for people like oh Dr Pepper that's the football soda you know yeah. or uh, or Bush that's the NFL soda I don't even know what it is the NFL or uh, <laughs> beer I, I don't even know if it is anymore I think it was at one point yeah. but uh, you know it's like you know I'm the official sponsor of this or that so does that does that create problems well you kind of bump into the same thing in conjunction with you know a certain large football game that takes place in February that you can't use the name of because the excellent the bowl, that, yeah, the amazing bowl, <laughs> the large bowl, the super game, <laughs> um, and and you know those kind of that's it's somewhat it's the same issue you know you're sort of seeing coming into these things is it's well we want official sponsors to be able to say you know that that's what they they've connected to we have these official sponsors they're the ones who can put the logos on there can do this obviously because official sponsors you're going to be paid license rights I mean that's part of the idea behind mm-hmm. being an official sponsor um, but. You're, I think that's what you're getting into now, is you're getting into this sort of question of these blurring of the lines of just media has become so pervasive, mm-hmm. trademark use has become so pervasive, everybody's using them, they're all over the place. There's a much greater likelihood of people just simply being confused of what is official and what isn't official. Yep. Something we've talked about even on, in this program before, and I think it's what you, you get into in copyright, is what's canon and what's not canon. Yeah. You know, and, and you talk about the Star Wars universe or the DC, you know, DC comic universe or the Marvel comic universe, what's canon and what's not. Um, is kind of the same question we're not getting into trademarks is what's sponsored and what's not. Speaking um, of which, um, it's hockey season again, <laughs> and the aforementioned Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues um, are playing, so we're all excited here. Um, after the Blues won the Cup last summer, there was a merch rush. I was part of it. <laughs> I was part of it as well. <laughs> we're all part of it. People who don't know anything about hockey and have never cared, nevertheless, <laughs> caught up in the media. Own blues gear, yeah. Uh, a lot of people... and uh, My daughter of, was actually upset because they had a Blues, like... Pride Day where they could all wear their blues outfits to school and she of course doesn't have a blues shirt because oh. we haven't gotten her one because she outgrows everything. <laughs> I've been following this Twitter feed called STL Cup Tracker which uh, it's a whole story about that I won't get into but basically this, this this lady here in St. Louis decided to track where the Stanley Cup is around town all summer and then finally the blues brought it to her yeah. uh, to, so she could see it but anyway I thought it was leaving town I think it leaves today or tomorrow but I'm laying in bed last night it's like, like 10 o'clock at night and I see on my Twitter feed, the Stanley Cup is at the RecPlex South in St. Peter's. And it took all of my willpower not to get up, throw on some clothes, and drive away. That's like 10 minutes away from me. And I was, I was thinking about it, and that was about when I saw someone say, no, it just left. It's heading out west. Nobody knows where it went, and okay. I lost track of it. But I'll have to go see it in the Hall of Fame one of these days. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Yeah, my son saw it. My wife saw it, and I, I didn't, and my daughter didn't. <laughs> the Stanley Cup itself is interesting from a trademark perspective because um, it is not actually owned by the NHL. Yep. Uh, Lord Stanley, I don't know the story fully, but I believe that he gave it to um, a couple of trustees uh, to hold, and they give it out to whoever wins the Professional Hockey Championship of the Year. The Stanley Cup itself predates the NHL by quite a bit. I think it was the 19- 1800s, maybe? It was yeah. when it was originally built. Uh so it's very old, and there. But but the NHL, I believe, owns a trademark registration for the likeness of the Stanley Cup, like the shape, which is iconic. Yeah, uh, sort of the trade dress in it. So there's a question there whether the NHL is the proper party at all here. But at any rate, uh, I, I can tell you that once you slap Stanley Cup on something, it costs $25 more than it otherwise <laughs> would. I don't know if that's the licensing fees or the market demand, probably a little bit of both. both. Um, but uh, so, so we had a you know, number of people around town who were doing you know, Stanley Cup promotional things, and, and most of them got away with it because, you know, what's the NHL going to do to St. Louis, you know, after this? Uh, <laughs> well, especially since they're probably making a large amount in licensing yeah. fees because of all the people who are doing this officially. But relatedly, uh, we had the whole Gloria phenomenon. Yep. So if you don't know what that is, uh, 80s pop artist uh, Laura Brannigan performed the song Gloria, which I would hum a few bars, but we don't have the licenses, <laughs> so I'm not going to. Um, so go look it up. Gloria, uh, St. Louis Blues, you'll find it. You'll, the minute you hear it, you'll remember it. Yep. It's and, one of those And most of us, songs. I think, remember it even without it. I mean, it was a very distinctive song. It was yep. almost an anthem of the 80s. Yeah, but it was written, I think, in the 70s by somebody else, and they have even been Italian composers, I think. We may yeah. have talked about this before. For. At any rate, one of the things um, that, that a lot of people have wanted to do around St. Louis is to slap Gloria on everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, this presents interesting questions because the song is called Gloria, yep. but the song is copyrighted, Kirk. It's not trademarked. You don't yes. trademark a song name. And so, Gloria is just a woman's name. There are a lot of women named Gloria out there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there are other songs called Gloria. There are a number of church hymns called Gloria, <laughs> yeah. right? So, um, you know... The, the trademark issue set us, and then the, the bar in Philadelphia that started all of this is Jack's NYB in Philly, which, by the way, we were out there back <laughs> in May. We should have gone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but Jack's has applied for trademark registrations, but they only applied after, I think. This all got very popular in St. Louis, so yeah. I don't even know if they're the correct applicant. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I think the, the issue you got in conjunction with this is there's a whole lot of confusion around this, and this is not the first time this has happened. No, you Ohio know, State trying to get a trademark on the, the as a, which <laughs> <laughs> which was denied. Well, but I mean, it's, it's but there's also been a lot of things where things have suddenly got attached to sports franges or something. St. Louis as well, we can pick on another one. Let's pick on the rally squirrel. Yeah. You know, and which, these things tend to happen organically. Yeah. But then people jump on it and try to lock up all the rights to it. Yeah, and I think part of the problem when you bump into with it is, is you bump into the idea that when you get these sort of third-party things that kind of pop in and something pops out like that, the, the league suddenly loses control yeah. of something. You know, I can make T-shirts that just have the word Gloria on them that are in blue and yellow. And the question is, who do I own rights to? And it may Nobody. not be the league. I have one. <laughs> yeah, it may not be the league. And it suddenly bumps into the wall, but people want Stanley Cup Blues gear. Yeah. We can't have people making these kind of knockoffs, particularly that we can't stop. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of thing that we really get into with these is when you get these kind of sudden bursts like that, particularly in playoffs, particularly in stuff like that. And again, the Rally Squirrel is another great example. Yeah. 
I think you bump into questions of who owns the rights here. What do they own the rights to? And the answer is nobody does until somebody does, until right? Somebody so, does. so yeah. Squirrel, well, whoever wants to sell it first, the minute you've got the intent to sell a product, it's completely legal to, yeah. to go register the trademark. There's nothing inherently wrong yeah. with that. And the Rally Squirrel is a great one because how many people actually remember the Rally Squirrel? I mean, I, I mentioned I didn't that. I remember it's it until you mentioned it just yeah, now. It's something that was huge in St. Louis for, you know, I think for one playoff run. Yeah. You know, but it sort of then died out very, very quickly. You know, you got to wonder, will we remember Gloria two years from now? You know, is this going to be something that dies yeah, off? It, but, yeah, it depends, right? Like, if, like they, I know that they're still playing, and I watched the banner hanging, and they played Gloria after that. Yeah. And uh, like Layla that was involved with the team, she's still around uh, doing stuff with them. Yeah. So I think they've they figured out they've got a lot of goodwill in the community. With, well, it's only like four months away, you know, past. So. Yeah, it's, it's in the recent past where everybody's still kind of elated from the, from the win. And there's just so many good stories that went with that team. Yeah. Um, that uh, it's it's um, it's uh, appealing, and you can understand why people want to get in on it. Uh, but one one question that I've heard asked a lot is people often say, "Gosh, I wonder how much Laura Brannigan has made off of all of this." And you and I have talked about this, and we think the answer is probably not that much. Yeah. Um, and the reason is because. Basically, in music, there's no public performance right for the performer in a sound recording. And Laura's not the songwriter. These, yeah. these other two guys are. So they've made probably And a even ton. in songwriting, there's there's fixed royalties yeah. for what it is for public performance. But uh, for a public performance uh, in, a, in a non-digital setting, so all the plays at the arena, at rally events, at the parade, none of those, she doesn't get anything for yeah. any of that. Or, or, a lot or of radio these, plays, even. And a lot of these, when they're covered, you know, the arena buys essentially a license to play whatever it wants, and it yeah. pays a fixed fee to, you know, yeah, whatever and then the ASCAP or BMI allocates that yeah. out or so the fact that they're playing you know one song 99% of the time they're playing music doesn't alter necessarily how the the royalties are distributed. I don't yeah. know how they do it internally if they pay any attention to that. But it's one of those things where I think what you, you really bump into is, you know, yes, there's some money changing hands because of this, but it's primarily the songwriters. It's not going to be the artist. And it's not necessarily going to be related to the amount that song has been played in a yeah. particular location. Speaking of music, the three major music <laughs> labels sued Charter in March of 2019, alleging uh, various things. But yep. one of the more interesting ones is that Charter's high-speed internet packages encourage music piracy. Now, um, I'm, <laughs> okay. a, I'm a Charter customer, uh, so uh, full disclosure. But in in my notes here, I have um, "I roll emoji" written down. <laughs> yeah, that's I think um, an accurate, somewhat statement here. Um, you know, the amount of bandwidth you need to download music is not that much. Uh, people did this back in the 90s on 56 baud yeah. modems, 28.8 modems. Uh, you, you don't need that much. I just can't imagine. They have legitimate arguments, I think, about not, you know, people who are perennial abusers under the DMCA. They keep sending takedowns on the same people, yeah. keep doing it, and then the ISPs don't always respond promptly. I think it's hard to keep track of that stuff, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I think one of the um, things you get into in conjunction with this is it's, and you got to wonder how much of this is them just trying to find some target for piracy. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you can go you know, on the internet and you can find the numbers. I mean, piracy is a huge problem. Everybody acknowledges it's a huge problem. But nobody really knows how, quite how to do, deal with it because it's it's only a huge problem because it's it's death by a thousand microcuts. Yeah. And it's very, very hard to stop a thousand microcuts. You may be able to stop 50 of them or 100 of them or you know half of them, but that's not enough. I think they've done about the best they can do. I mean, I, th- I think the answer is probably not legal here. It's, yeah. it's a market, a commercial answer, which they have. We have the iTunes store. Oh, we don't have the iTunes store to, anymore. 
Yeah, we're not going to for long. I mean, <laughs> streaming services, so I, I think it, the problem's going to go away. Um, I mean, sales of records and albums are down because nobody wants physical media anymore except Kurt. Actually, records are going up. Apparently, the sales of physical vinyl records are up. Oh, and did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. sales of cassettes apparently are up. Well, if you listen um, to 80s music, that's, yeah, that's how that, uh, apparently that's, there's like, that's how know, that music was meant to be heard. <laughs> there was there was this desire for, you know, the, the vinyl being the correct way to listen to music. Now there's this desire. The cassette is the correct way to I listen to music. I cannot understand that. The cassette was such an <laughs> ill-conceived technology. <laughs> Except for like, that it was portable. That well, was the thing with the cassette. Portable and durable, right? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. portable and durable, Oddly and that's durable. why the cassette was so good. I mean, even when CDs first came out, cassettes still had the advantage that they were portable and durable because yep. you know, CDs would melt in your car, you yep. know, and stuff like that. So it's I can get why, you know, cassettes have a certain popularity, but the, the question I think you really bump into is, you know, how much of this is just nostalgia, um, yep. you know, for the things. Though I do have to admit, and it's just for me personally, I bought music off of iTunes, you know, individual songs, albums, stuff like that for years. I've gone back to buying physical albums. And a lot of the reason that I'm doing it is, one, iTunes is a pain, and particularly now since it doesn't exist. But the other thing that I really bumped into in conjunction with it is it's I don't want to deal with having to have them only on the iPod. Mm -hmm. I want to have them other locations. So it's one of those where it's like, you know, I mean, I have my old 90s era, you know, portable stereo, boombox. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be 80s for a second there. Um you know, which is great to play CDs on. My kids love to use it. It just sits in our living room. It still works. Our kids put CDs in it. I can't hook my iPad up to or iPod up to it. It's too old. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's one of those things where, you know, I think you've really got some some ideas of the fact people are kind of looking at these and things and going, you know, there actually is some value of physical media. Yeah, so I have, I got a new uh, receiver for our living room, which is Bluetooth enabled. So I can just connect my phone to it and play music through the living room speakers through my phone. Yep. But, you know, Bluetooth's not perfect. You know, I'll wander too far away and it cuts out and, <laughs> you know, little things like that happen. So these, these little minor annoyances show yep. up. Uh, speaking of ridiculous claims of IP <laughs> piracy... In well, this is already claims. I mean, uh, claims, but in, in 2011, uh, I contributed a chapter to a book uh, published by the American Bar Association uh, on video game development, sort of a, an IP guide for for non legal people to understand the law for video game developers. And I'm going to read to you. I know you guys don't like that, but I'm going to read to you a couple sentences I wrote. Uh, and it was a note of caution to video game developers. And I'm going to redact a bit for brevity. But here's what I wrote. Product placement is everywhere. Good custodians of branded properties aggressively police their use to ensure that their brands and products are not threatened through haphazard public use or unwanted associations with unpopular public figures. This may seem an esoteric concern, but product placement issues can sneak up upon the unwitting designer. For example, virtually every game involving car racing or sports requires the use of trademarked property. Even flight simulators and war games can implicate this concern. If you don't want a cease and desist letter from the multi-billion dollar banking chemical, automotive, and electronics holding company known as Mitsubishi Group, you might want to talk to your lawyer before you include that Mitsubishi Zero in your World War II game, period, end quote. Now, Kirk, I'm being a little cheeky here. You're a wizard again. Mit yeah, I'm a wizard again. Mitsubishi's obviously not going to go sue anybody over the use of the Zero. Nobody, you know, like, how um, dare you? unlikely. Yeah. Yes. Unlikely. However, in 2017, uh, the makers of Humvee sued Activision Blizzard for depicting the Humvee in the Call of Duty games without Humvee's permission. <laughs> so, um, they, they 
argue, of course, trademark infringement and more specifically uh, trade dress infringement. It's not a bad claim. The, the Humvee, Humvee is pretty, pretty recognizable vehicle. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a car guy, but I know a Humvee when I see it. Now, it's a Humvee, um, not a Hummer, if I remember correctly as yeah, well. Yeah, so. yeah. So I'm not saying that they got the idea for this lawsuit from me, but I'm also not not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the the interesting thing with it, and a lot of what we're doing in conjunction with this is it, it's a potpourri episode, yes. You know, we're following up on all these things. But we're pointing out the fact that these issues are continuing to crop up. You know, this is something I would have said things. was one of my stupid law school ideas. Like, this would be a fun law school. Fine, it'll never happen, but it's such an absurd fact pattern. Yeah. How would you deal with it? Well, there it is. Yeah, and know? the answer is no, it's actually a case. And I think that that's the, that's the great thing about this is to sort of say, you know, hey, we've talked about these fact patterns. We've talked about the fact that there's this kind of stuff out there. These things are continuing to happen. That's really the take-all from this grab bag is these things are continuing to happen. These cases are not going away. Some of them are becoming more popular. Some of them are becoming less popular. Some of them have drug on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's our... Speaking of which... <laughs> next anecdote. <laughs> Kirk, who owns the rights to Ms. Pac-Man? Uh, Nobody knows. Uh, so Ms. Pac-Man was created in 1982 by three MIT dropouts uh, who worked for a company called General Computer Corporation, which, by the way, is a terrible name. Don't ever call your company <laughs> General, General Computer, Computer Corporation. Corporation. The original Pac-Man was created by a Japanese company, Namco, and distributed in the U.S. by uh, Midway. Uh, but uh, Midway had become impatient for a sequel to Pac-Man. They had sold what they could sell, uh, and so they and Namco was kind of dragging its feet on getting the next Super or uh, Pac-Man out to them. They had a Super Pac-Man in the works, uh, but. Uh, uh, General Computer Corporation was a mod kit company. They'd already been sued by Atari for making mod kits for Missile Command, uh, and they had an injunction that ordered them to stop doing that unless they get permission. Well, uh, General Computer Corp. had in the works something called Crazy Auto, which was a mod kit for Pac-Man, and rather than just dump it since they couldn't use it anymore, they went to Midway and said, do you guys want it? And Midway uh, said, sure. I think an important thing to keep in mind at this point in time, mod kit, also when we're talking about it, we're, we're almost talking hardware. Hardware. We are talking hardware. Um, you know, at this stage, this is not something where you're just talking, hey, you created extra levels and released them on a yeah. CD. This is serious engineering. These yeah. were hardware games. Yeah, new PROMs. Like, yeah. you have to pop out the, the circuit board thing and pop in a new one. Uh, so, Mid, uh, Midway bought the rights to Clay, uh, Crazy Auto and then worked with Namco to get it ready for release. It was rebranded to Ms. Pac-Man, I think, less than 70 hours before going to production. <laughs> And the Ms. Pac-Man idea was actually uh, Namco's idea. Um, and there's, I don't know if this is retconning or not, but there's an interesting side social reason. Uh, Pac-Man was interesting because uh, the majority of the players at the time were believed to be female. Of Pac-Man. Uh, of Pac-Man at a time when games were very much a male-dominated industry, uh, more so than now. Um, and uh, it's, it's also, I think, one of the first video games to have a female protagonist. It may be the first video game to have. <laughs> female being debatable for a circle with basically yeah. a giant mouth. But well, originally she had hair, and the, the Japanese uh, director said, take it off. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there was some debate whether to call it Mrs. Pac-Man or Miss Pac-Man, and they liked Miss Pac-Man better because it rolls off the tongue a little better. But uh, someone at Namco said, wait a minute, we've got an intermission scene that shows a stork being delivered. Do we want to raise questions about <laughs> the relationship? Baby Pac-Man. Between, yeah, delivering the baby Pac-Man. This may raise questions we're not really interested in answering about the relationship <laughs> between Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. This is absurd, right? <laughs> in many respects, yes. And under modern counts, sort of the concern here is kind of absurd. So they went, time, it's kind of impressive that they were actually paying attention. They even to thought it. about this, right? So they <laughs> went with Ms. Pac-Man. So I'm going to say that Ms. Pac-Man is actually a low-key contemporary feminist critique. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think the thing you get into with this, and, and again, I think, you know, we're, we're making some jokes about this as to what it is, but, you know, part of the argument with this is, is there really any difference between Ms. Pac-Man and Pac-Man? Um, well, mechanically, and like, no. Mechanically, no. And as I sort of joke about it is it's also, you know, yes, Ms. Pac-Man has a bow. Um, you also know. a better game, I would argue. Yeah, well, there's some argument that they figured out more what they were doing and knew what they were doing in conjunction with the hardware. But I think the thing that's interesting sort of from the background of it is it's, how much is there really a difference in this? And yet, we, they are. So there's clearly worry in conjunction with the companies having to do with we're gender issues. We're still fighting about this. Yeah, you know? and we're still fighting about it. And that's the other thing with it. Yeah, so. that's the thing. Due, due to the unusual way it was developed, where it came from a third party, the ownership of the IP rights and the resulting royalties um, has it still remains unresolved all this time later. There was an agreement in 1983, a second agreement in 2008. Uh, GCC is still around. I'm guessing all they do is collect royalties off Ms. Pac-Man. Uh, but it's, it's not clear. I don't have the details. Unless I couldn't find the contracts that they're even available to the public. But uh, it's it's not clear who owns what rights to what part of what. Yeah. Uh, none of this really mattered, though, uh, until a company called At Games, which makes uh, you know legacy throwback mini consoles and arcade cabinets. They came to Namco and said, "We want to do a Ms. Pac-Man console," and Namco said, "No." Uh, they did other things together, but not this. Yep. Uh, according to Namco, At Games went ahead and made one anyway. And it's mm-hmm. not clear to me if it's actually been commercially available or not, but they claim they made one and there was a lawsuit filed over it. And the only thing you have in mind, and it's just when we breezed over with this, it's not that there weren't disputes on this and sort of ongoing disputes. Most of them had settled. And yeah. I think that's the sort of key thing to keep in mind. There were some disputes over this that had settled, and we're talking settled back in the 80s. You yeah. know, in conjunction with this, the companies were happy, but because we're seeing this wave of nostalgia for one of these old games, which are still under copyright, mm-hmm. copyright's 100 years, you know, sort of They'll be under copyright after all of you listening to this are dead, so. Yeah. <laughs> so it's one of those things where what we're bumping into in conjunction with this is now this wave of nostalgia, the copyright is still held, but there's still these underlying questions of who actually owns it. Yeah, um, and it's 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 weird because so this was filed I think in August of this year. And then afterwards, I think afterwards, uh, um, at Games went to the General Computer Corporation and bought the rights to the royalty stream. So whatever rights GCC still has, <laughs> now at Games owns them. Yeah. So I, I don't know where this is going. It's it's a really odd uh, situation, and I th- I think the reason it's still not clear who owns what is probably because the paper record's not that clear. Yeah. It's, this is a version of the Dungeons and Dragons episode we did uh, two episodes ago involving Arneson and, uh, and Gygax's disputes over royalties. These documents were written in the 80s under a certain set of facts. Well, the world has changed since yep. then, and now it's not clear. Do those agreements still cover what's being done now? The other thing with it, yeah, I think the key things we got here, we got two pieces of it. One of which is, we've had a dramatic change in the world. We were talking, you know, stuff going from computer games being hardware consoles that you played in video game locations or maybe in the local sandwich shop if Mm -hmm. you happen to be lucky enough for them to have one to video games being pervasive, you know, know, potentially now the largest form of entertainment in existence. You know, that's a dramatic change. The same piece behind it is not only has that sort of technology changed, but we've had changes in the law associated with this. You know, what's, what's changed in conjunction with the law? We also have the issues that I don't think anybody necessarily realized that Pac-Man was going to become the icon of the 80s when they originally created this Not game. Not to mention that it would then be revived due to um, a popular nostalgia for retro gaming. I mean, yeah. in 1996, did anybody really care about Pac-Man? I mean, like, there was like a PlayStation 2 version and, and some you know some things like yeah, that. Yeah, we were all much more excited branding. with, you know, hey, we've got better graphics, you know, we look at all this great stuff. Hey, look at all this new Nintendo stuff coming out. It's all new. It's not stuff we'd seen before. And yet now there's this huge desire for retro gaming. I mean, let's talk about World of Warcraft Classic. I mean, uh, Yeah, I am a subscriber. I'm level 34. 
four. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it, we're seeing this kind of idea of like retro gaming. The NES back classic is back. You know, yeah. You could also wonder if part of it's just because of the fact that sort of sort of modern games are so much more complex than any of these old ones are. There's a value to having a game that you can just sit down and play. I very think it's quickly. people our age who are like, well, I still remember how to beat Mario three. I just can't play it. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But whereas I can't keep up with these high school kids that are playing Fortnite. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you know, and so much of the games now there's a lot of Twitch games. There's a lot of things where it's you know, and I I joked about this and I think I've said on this podcast and I've talked about it with other people. You know, it used to be that, you know, when you walked into the arcade, all you needed was to look at the controls and watch the, you know, 10-second mm-hmm. intro on the screen to and learn everything how to, you play, to, know the to game. play the game. Yeah. Now, you know, then it went to you need the instruction manuals, which eventually got into instruction books. I mean, like literal books. Then you got into, okay, well, the book is no longer shipped with it, but it's sold separately and you can get the yeah. book that explains how to play the game. Or you need the third-party online database of all the stuff that's yeah. in it, like classic WoW. Yeah, whereas now, all of a sudden now it's, Hey, there's enormous amounts of YouTube channels. You know, there's there's hundreds of different YouTube channels dedicated to a single game, which are making millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, in in explaining how to play the game, and you know how the statistics work. You know, trying to do the math behind it. In many respects, they're reverse engineering what the programmers are trying to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to explain how to play the game, you've got this sort of totally different world that we're into now. How much is people looking at it and saying, "I want a game that all I have to do is start up." and I can figure out how to play, and that's all I need to know. Like, I don't need to know anything else. Speaking of unnecessary complexity, (laughs) Kirk, what have you got in your hands over there? So this is something I just found out about. I don't know exactly when it came out, but I thought this was great. It follows up with our D&D episode, which is that Wendy's, the hamburger joint, has presented Feast of Legends, (laughs) which is a (laughs) role-playing game. Um, Feast of Legends is a full-out role-playing game. I don't know if you guys have seen How many pages this. is that thing? It's a 97-page full-color rulebook. <laughs> um, we'll tweet out a link to the... To it's, the yeah, so it's feastoflegends.com. Um, but, I mean, this is a fully playable RPG. I mean, it's a bit bare-bones in certain respects as to things 97 pages? About. How bare-bones can it be? Well, it goes through a lot of things that are, you know, modifications and stuff like that. Your characters are not terribly complicated. I mean, you have, you know, a strength, intelligence, charm, arcana, grace, defense, and hit points. You know, resistance, weaknesses, and advantages, There's disadvantages. There's no rating? What you're carrying, how much gold you have, um, you know, particular skills. And then what I think is great is these order skills. Yes, yeah, so let's go through the so, orders. So the orders, when you select an order for what it is. So just to clarify, this is like a player's handbook, like a Dungeons yeah. and Dragons player's oh, handbook. A, there is a player's handbook, and the second piece of it is referred to, I believe, as the Game Master's Handbook. Yeah, complete uh, yes, with Game like, Master's Guide. Like properly themed art, and the art is done straight. It's deadly yeah. serious art, it's not cartoony and goofy. You, if you were to tell me that, the, take the text out. Yeah. If you just showed me the art and said, look, it's D&D 6th edition, I would believe you. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, the orders, and again, order being a play on the fact that you order food order, here, obviously. Or, yeah. The order is all based upon what your order is for food. Yeah. So you can be, for example, the order of the chicken. You can also be the order of the beef. But underneath each of the orders, like, for example, the order of the, order of the chicken, the art of the chicken, um, adventurers who are trained in the art of the chicken are often seen as magical. How about um, so? I would be the order of the spicy chicken. You'd be the order of the spicy chicken sandwich, which needs to say is your fire mage. Yes, um, and that's exactly it. You are the order of the spicy chicken sandwich. <laughs> I personally would love to be the order of the Asiago Ranch Chicken Club, um, which that's I think is kind of hilarious. Get it? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so you know stuff. Like, they have you know full gear guides in here. I mean, one of the things I think is great is in the gear. Your armor can be things from a 
hamburger bun to bacon armor, mm-hmm. um, which of course is heavy armor, which I think is kind of great. I like that you have a fork as one of your weapons, also the great fork. <laughs> a great fork and a spork. Um, yep. The uh, you know the locations, there's a fully playable campaign in here uh, where one of the places you have to go to is Frosty Canyon, which has two lakes, vanilla and chocolate. Now our hero, what's the hero's name? Like, so the, the, the leader. The lore. The, you are actually in... Um, the, the town is to what it is. So you're in a specific location. The world is in the realm of Beef's Keep, um, <laughs> in which Creeping Vale and the United Clown Nations have led their people into a collective darkness known as the Deep Freeze. Um, while it feels like a cold and desolate place, you reside in the one nation that remains a true beacon of hope, Freshtovia, who Fresh is led Dovia. by Queen Wendy. Um, and I love the Queen Wendy, first of her name, a breaker of fast food chains, defender of all things fresh, never frozen. Uh, the clapback queen has been the ruler of Frestovia since 1969 <laughs> and defends their own from the treacherous evils of those who practice the dart arc of frozen beef. And Queen Wendy has a full-color drawing in here. I may need to change my Twitter <laughs> description to uh, that I, I fight those who practice the dark art of frozen <laughs> beef. <laughs> um, but it's, it's what I love about this and sort of my thing of it is, is... It is obviously a marketing piece. So no question, this is a marketing That's piece. That's an elaborate marketing it's piece. It's an incredibly <laughs> elaborate marketing piece. It's actually a pretty well done, you know, basic core game system. Well, and really your, characters, not much to your it. character's attributes depend on what you, the player, have eaten that <laughs> yes. day. So if you had gas station food, you lose two <laughs> intelligence for the points. campaign. If that's what you're currently eating while playing the game. Um, but yeah, so there's just a bunch of sort of stuff in here. But following up from our D&D, you know, episodes as to what it is, you know, we have this, which is a role-playing game, which is clearly a fantasy universe. This thing has some tongue-in-cheek components to it, um, but we see, like, what does this mean for role-playing games? Like, is this a legitimate role-playing game? Could I infringe a copyright in this? You know, how would I without necessarily getting in all over Wendy's intellectual property and, like, sandwich names and mm-hmm. stuff like that? But, you know, some very intriguing stuff with, you know, where does Man, this kind of thing Wendy's get to? Man, I want some Wendy's now. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and the last thing I had with it is, and, you know, and I, I jokingly mentioned this to you on the way over here, can you play this in prison? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, now, admittedly, you obviously cannot get Wendy's food, I'm pretty sure, at vast majority of See, prisons. I would think this was worse than D&D. Not only are you practicing <laughs> the dark arts of, of <laughs> frozen <beef>. prison food, <laughs> I don't know what that does to your stats, <laughs> but you're going to have a bunch of hungry inmates who can't get Wendy's while they're playing this game. I think you're just asking for yeah. trouble. Though I did notice, you know, there is no, there is no negative for eating prison food while playing. Um, I'm guessing that the author didn't contemplate that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's one of those things, I wanted to call it out just because I think it's it's an incredibly it's sort of silly fun and thing. Fun. It's silly as what it is. But what really astounded me when I found out about this, I thought it was kind of neat that they'd done this. And so I just went and checked it out. And when I suddenly realized it's a 97-page, full-color, When you sent it to me, I thought it was book. like a web game of some kind. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'll check that out later because those are a dime a dozen, yeah. right? And then we talked this morning. like, no, it's like a 97-page. <laughs> Kirk has a color manual printed out. I have out. the color manual printed out here from the PDF. You can download the like, PDF for free. You got to see it. The art is straight serious. It's like somebody was making... Uh, like the RPG inversion of a dark comedy. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. It's, it's worth your time to go look at. Yeah, although admittedly in like in conjunction with it, like the, the one of the magic user characters in this, her staff is glowing with what daily looks like the Wendy's logo. And, you know, so the, the art, but it's, it is full color. It's done in, you know, it's, again, it's got full out generated artwork. There's maps in here. There's a substantial number of maps. There's kind of fantasy artwork. Now, admittedly, the fantasy artwork is sort of clearly from, the, you'd say, one person in the way that it's been generated. Yeah. And it only uses a certain limited number of characters in a variety of different places. How long until the first fresh con where people get together for the- <laughs> <laughs> to play this game? Um, I kind of want to go to a convention and, like, suggest playing this game. That might be kind of amusing. We should but- go to Archon. When's Archon? Is that coming up? It probably uh, I don't know. It. But- 
Yeah, our cons are a local gaming convention <laughs> over in uh, Illinois. Yeah, yeah that, that's silly. Too. And I, I told Kirk earlier, I, w- I would like to know how this came to be. Like, yeah. I can't imagine that the marketing department at Wendy sat down and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come up with this elaborate RPG that we made from scratch. It's all yeah. Wendy's Pen and themed. paper game. And Yeah, a pencil and paper game. I could see a... Because nobody's going to play this, right? Like, you and me might someday because we're, <laughs> we're crazy. But <laughs> I'm sure people are going to play it as a joke. Yeah, people play it as a joke. But, you know, whereas an online game, people will come back and play if the mechanics are fun. This requires a lot more work. They got to get the yeah. dice and re- learn the rules. So this you don't uh, actually need the dice. You can go to their webpage and they actually have an automatic dice roller for you. Oh, well, how do we know it's fair? <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, I just I'm curious how this came to be. I've got to think it was like a running joke in, inside the Wendy's marketing group somewhere that eventually got out of control, and they were like, "All right, at this point, let's just make it into a real thing." Yeah, um, it's probably something along those lines. But again, I just it's one of those things that for this podcast, I think is sort of an amusing anecdote. It kind of fits with today's episode, and particularly having that we just did two episodes on Dungeons and Dragons. I thought we needed to bring it up. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so uh, th- that's our hour. Uh, there's the music, and it's time to go. We're actually not sure on our next topics. It'll be a surprise to everybody, uh, including us. Including us. So, uh, also not sure on timing. As we said before, we um, have busy months coming up, so we may not get to another recording. I'm, I'm going to guess we're not going to record until we get back from AIPLA. So, probably December sometime yeah. will be our next episode. Um, so, uh, you, mean, so no, you mean November sometime? Or yeah, what did I say? December? Yeah, November. So yeah, don't don't get excited until then. Uh, so at any rate, um, check out our website at uh, www.lggpodcast.com. The website has links to all of our various platforms where you can download prior episodes. Get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Please subscribe to our podcast on the platforms. Give us a review to help new listeners find us. If you'd like to talk to me, I am on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at Kirk D-M-N. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, order some Wendy's. <laughs> The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.